0: What if you could sit down one-on-one with some of the most iconic global industry leaders and explore their secret sauce for success, delve deeper into their minds, their methods, and their motivations, and shed the persona to discover the person? Welcome to The Relevance Report, a web series and podcast dedicated to hearing from transformational titans who are shaping brands, industries, and the future. Join our host, CEO and founder of Relevance International, Suzanne Rosnowski, as we talk experience, trends, purpose, and what's new and next. Prepare to be inspired. This is The Relevance Report.
1: Welcome to The Relevance Report, where we sit down with global industry leaders who are driving impact and shaping the future. Today, we're honored to welcome Don Peebles. He's the founder and CEO of the Peebles Corporation, a leading real estate investment and development company with a multi-billion dollar portfolio of projects across the US. He's recognized as one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the US as well. And he's been recognized by Forbes as one of the top 10 wealthiest black Americans. He's a political activist and also an author. And we're very glad to have him today. Welcome Don.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I uh, wonder where you are. I see the beautiful background, nice pictures of the family. Where are you right now?
2: I'm in my home office at my home in Coral Gables, Florida, which is a suburb of Miami.
1: Amazing. It seems like a lot of New Yorkers are down in Florida right now. It seems to be the sixth borough.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've lived down here since 1996 or seven and have gone back and forth to different places for quite some time. So I've seen it grow. And I would say that the amount of New Yorkers that are down here is unprecedented, especially those who are in the, you know, the private sector and the real estate business uh, and finance.
1: So, does it feel like? I mean, I'm I'm up here still in the New York suburbs, but does it feel like uh, you're seeing everybody from the city? Are you seeing a lot of people out and about, or is it is it different? Because you know, everyone's still in their home, right? So, I don't know how social you can get.
2: <laughs> well, here it's very different. Here. Uh, you know, weather uh, creates an environment to be outdoors. I mean, if we think about New York City and, you know, the tri-state area during the summer, um, the, there was outdoor dining, people were outside, they were walking around and so forth. And you go into some stores, there was a mask requirement to go into the stores and so on. So what you have here in South Florida is you've got people walking around, the restaurants are open, there's outdoor dining, um, and uh, the weather is cooperating. It's in the mid 60s to mid 70s here right now. Over the last few weeks, and uh, so people are out and about. I, I mean, I'm getting requests and invitations for lunch um, or meetings in person from New Yorkers that are, you know, scattered around, you know, from Palm Beach down to to Miami. So it doesn't. It feels like a pandemic because. We're working this way, um, Mm -hmm. you know, through zoom and and virtual meetings. uh, And it also feels a bit like a pandemic because people are wearing masks and we're wearing masks, but there's no mask mandate here. And, uh, and so what you have, though, is you have, I mean, the restaurants and kind of more normal life active and, and it's crowded here. I mean, there's traffic in the car, get into a car, it's, there's congestion. So it's very, very different experience than what, you know, you see in in New York, for example, right now.
1: Yeah, I feel like New Yorkers are so resilient, and uh, they're finding a way to adapt. I I feel so busy right now. And I know you are as well. Everybody's finding a way through zoom and and uh, networking where they can and finding opportunities. So Do you think that uh, we're gonna be coming back to the old New York or uh, the old way of doing things anytime soon or or do you think there are some permanent changes uh, now that we're in this new post COVID world?
2: Yeah, one, I don't think that we're gonna come back to doing things as they normally were. I do, I mean, I think, look, um, I'm fortunate. There are many people in my um, space and at my income level that um, are fortunate because we've got the freedom of mobility, some flexibility and the like, but the vast majority of New Yorkers and the vast majority of Americans are, I mean, being hit very hard um, by this pandemic. And so we've got to all be putting our thinking caps on as to how we rebuild our economy um, so that the people who are you know, working and struggling and whose jobs have been lost, um, you know, that there's a way for them to earn a living and, and prosper. And so I do not think New York comes back the way it is. I mean, I think in some regards, this is an opportunity for uh, New York to improve itself and to address some of the systemic um, challenges that New York um, has faced. So, for example, um, one, I don't think we're coming back into the offices in the same way. So there's going to be mm-hmm. less wear and tear on the infrastructure for commuting because now people can work remotely. It would be absurd for any business to expect, unless they're doctors or some type of you know, service provider, um, to come into their offices every day. So I think you're going to see more people live in the suburbs, stay at home outside of the city, uh, and, and it'll reduce the burden on the infrastructure. I think mm-hmm. New York is going to become much more, it already has become much more affordable. So Mm. people will be able to live in New York um, on a more affordable basis. That will attract younger residents uh, to New York and again, reduce the level of commuting. And I think it's clear um, that retail space and retail rents for example, have gone down significantly and that was happening before the pandemic. So that's gonna make it more affordable for Mm -hmm. aspiring entrepreneurs and small businesses to open up businesses grow their businesses or start new ones. And uh, so that's a very positive thing for New York. I think New York has the opportunity to re-energize itself and to remake itself to be even better and a more perfect city um, than what it was um, in the past. Because in the past, um, New York had tremendous wealth and income disparities and still does.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more, Don, because uh, it seems like uh, there's, there's a great opportunity for a renaissance now. You know, we're reimagining the city and some of the most creative minds and innovative minds are coming to the table and they're having a chance to have a voice and really think about what's, what's, what's a smarter way, not always the way that it was done, but what's a smarter way that we can fun- function as a, a city. And I do think you're right. Uh, it does create a lot more uh, opportunity for people who really, you know, otherwise were priced out and uh, pushed out. And, and so, you know, one of the things that I love about working with you, Don, is you've always been a champion of minority and women-owned businesses. I mean, I remember when we first met, uh, it was, it was, it was a a main criteria uh, for you. It was super important for you to understand and champion that, yes, uh, you want to give opportunities to women like myself. I mean, the real estate industry, it's no secret. Uh, we don't really have a lot of women sitting at those tables. Uh, and we also don't have many minorities. And, you know, talk to us a little bit about how you've really helped uh, champion that. And on every project too, it's really impressive how you make sure that every single vendor partner and, uh, and uh, you know, really everybody that you work with does uh, have the same ethical backbone and, and try to go after uh, making sure there's more equality.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, I operate based on the country I live in, and this is a very diverse country and the places I do business. And so for example, New York City, New York City is 67% minority and 53% female. And so you have a tremendous talent pool um, with women and minorities, and they're very underutilized because if you look at the concentration of opportunities, they go to white men. And, uh, and so as a result, you know, I, I believe that that is a, a business challenge as much as it is a political and fairness challenge. It's, the solution lies within business people. And so if we as business people can assess um, the environment we're in and recognize the inequity, then we can start, you know, doing things to change it. And so my view is that I want to have, I want to draw from the largest pool of talent. So it's absurd to try to draw from a pool of talent that excludes women and minorities. And so the flip side, we see that as a very deep pool of talent, and uh, and so therefore we draw upon that. and And our company has a a goal going forward that all of our all of our projects around the country, the four billion dollars of projects we're working on that 30, a minimum of 35% of uh, contracting goes to minority and women-owned firms who are mentally qualified. And, uh, and, I, and I urge constantly my own uh, colleagues in my industry to do the same thing. And one of the other things that we've done is we've launched a fund, a private equity fund, to um, invest in minority and women developers because women and minorities are severely underrepresented when it comes to the top levels of real estate developers. And it's basically because of access to capital. I mean, real estate is funded by private equity and and venture capital. And right now there's $69 trillion of capital invested in private equity and venture capital, but less than 1.3% of that money goes to firms own or run by women and people of color combined. So that means that 98.7% of all venture capital and private equity dollars go to white men. And it's absurdly unfair allocation of capital. And so we're trying to do our tiny little part to change that. And I kind of challenge everybody else in my industry to do the same.
1: That's amazing, incredible. So where are you seeing the new opportunities in development? Uh, What trends are you spotting? I know you've got a a new club down there in, in Florida. And uh, you're you're investing more in private clubs. Is that is that an area you see as uh, an emerging trend overall?
2: No, I mean I, I, I um I relaunched the my wife and I relaunched the Bath Club. The mm-hmm. Bath Club is a one of the old private um, social clubs. In fact, the oldest in the Southeast United States, founded in 1926, um, and when it was founded, it didn't allow African American or Jewish members. I became the first Black member in 1996, and then bought it in 1998. So I built a luxury condo development on the project, continued to own the historic club and kind of just really didn't do much with it. Let the former members run it and then do a venue facility. But we decided that it was time to revitalize it. And uh, so we started working on it um, before COVID. And then when COVID happened, we felt one, that it still was a good business model and two, that we needed to invest money so that we could do our part to create some jobs and economic opportunities, and so we did um, hire a talented um, a female-owned and run um, design firm to do the entire redesign of the property, and mm-hmm. um, and so we're doing this proper. You know, we relaunched the membership, and it's a you know kind of um, a, um, exclusively inclusive club and uh, Country Club on the Ocean, and um, it's done very well. I'm happy with that, but our bigger projects are in mm. Los Angeles, downtown LA, um, and Boston, uh, and Charlotte, North Carolina, which we're very excited about. And we, I, I mean, I see the future in real estate coming in a couple of ways. One, opportunistic, because there's going to be some significant uh, stress in retail. And you can see it, you saw it before the pandemic and you're seeing it now where these malls are closing, many never to reopen or they're going into foreclosure. Hotels are closing, never to reopen. Many will go into foreclosure. Office buildings are trying to figure it out. There's gonna be a lot of stress there as well. So there's gonna be some opportunistic areas on the larger scale. But ultimately what the industry is going to need to do and where I think people will get rewarded you know, the most Is by providing um, the products that are in demand and that are severely underserved. And so the number one is affordable housing, number two, workforce housing, and number three, more affordable um, retail opportunities. And I think that the distress will um, take, you know, will solve that issue about retail affordability. And I think people are gonna live and work very differently. And so how to navigate that from a you know um a live and work experience, I think that's again another area of real estate. And so just like New York City is gonna remake itself, I think there are other cities that are gonna to have to do the same thing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean our office in London, we we talk about it several times a day. You know, what's the new uh, Soho going to look like in London? What's the new uh, shopping experience, retail experience, dining experience going to look like there and same in New York and uh, also LA. And I love that you're you're doing so much in such a wide array of projects in various cities around the country. It's exciting because you're you're definitely very diversified. I mean, you're you're investing in many different types of of large scale projects and they're all very exciting. Can you talk to us a little bit about your your latest one in Beverly Hills?
2: Yeah, we are are under contract on a site um, that is in the heart of Beverly Hills that we're exploring doing a mixed use hospitality and, and then residential condos. One, that market is underserved on both um, and, uh, and so we feel that, you know, we'd be able to compete favorably. But I think what happens in California, I mean, in other major cities in California is a, a good indication of this and a good example is the artificial barriers that have been created to slow down development have served as the biggest impetus of driving up cost mm-hmm. um, because of how long it takes to get land entitled in, in California. Uh, It drives up the cost of land and then forces developers uh, to go the luxury route um, for housing because they've spent so much money and time getting the sites entitled. And so the values of the sites go up. Mm -hmm. And the number one thing you need to provide workforce and affordable housing is low cost land and to be able to execute those business plans and development plans very quickly. So I think California has to rethink itself. New York has begun to do that already and it's never been as, um, uh, you know, restrictive as say, um, you know, um, you know uh, Los Angeles or, or San Francisco. So, but still I think that that's where, you know we're gonna see some changes
1: too. The dirt is just too expensive, they say. So uh, you know, to make the development deals work, and so I think you're right. We're going to be seeing hopefully more affordable product coming to market, and uh, more of an opportunity for people to actually live in the cities uh, at an affordable price, and more people being able to own uh, a home in in urban areas, and uh, you know, more opportunities for you know people who typically were priced out, as we mentioned. Um, what are some of the ways in which uh, you see developers, uh, you know, potentially having a great opportunity now? I mean, uh, just thinking about it from a business perspective, um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about life sciences. There are lots of new tech uh, opportunities for developers. Do you see certain areas that you think are gonna be ripe for opportunity for developers?
2: I mean, I think, de- I mean, I think that real estate developers, you know, that were entrepreneurs. Um, I was joking with my wife. We were watching a movie last night and one of the, we we're watching, actually, a, it was a television show, it was a Law & Order episode. And the bad guy, the villain, um, in fact, no, it wasn't Law & Order. It was the equalizer um, oh. was <laughs> with Queen Latifah as the equalizer. So you have this, it's a new television show. And the villain was a nightclub owner. And I was telling my wife, you know, we were talking about the low barriers to entry. As a nightclub owner, you come up with, you know, find a location, et cetera. And I was saying, we were debating as to whether the barriers to entry were lower in the development business or in the nightclub business. Mm -hmm. Um, And because there are low barriers to entry, especially if you have access to capital. I I mean, I think that as long as we, we are a capitalistic democracy, and as long as we are in that space, then capital and investors are going to go to places where they can, or or product type, where they can make the most money. So, I mean, I think that we've got to look at just like, I mean, the Walton family and Sam Walton, you know, created the biggest fortune in the world providing quality products to the masses of people. And for some, and, and he was able to do that by going and finding um, lowest cost products. And he did it by buying American by and large. Um, so somewhat of a protectionist. Somehow we have to figure out how to be able to do that to provide quality, basic housing for all Americans, especially in, who are living in our urban centers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what we are seeing is the failure to do that has actually made these markets less attractive. I think if you ask New Yorkers, what's one of the top three issues um, of quality of life, they will tell you one of them will be homeless. Ask mm. residents of San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, they'll all say kind of the same thing. So we've got to figure out how to make it profitable. And, and everybody's in different tiers, by the way. Not everybody. There's not enough rich people to build all the luxury housing. That's why New Yorkers had a a recession in that space. So we gotta figure out how to solve that. And, and I think that is gonna be our challenge of, of this time. And I think for the first time in, a, in, in probably our nation's history, the public isn't accepting it anymore. They're not accepting this capitalism where um, it, you don't care or you know take care of our fellow citizen. So there's gonna be a greater expectation that some of these challenges like affordable workforce housing are addressed. And I think failing to do that will threaten the type of democracy we have. So I think people, I think our businesses are gonna have to kind of re-engage in saying, okay, we're gonna figure out how to make money doing this. We're gonna have to push the government to do things that allows a more expeditious delivery of affordable housing and and, and the like. And I think that that's gonna be our challenge of this this new cycle.
1: I love that. I love that, Don, because we've developed something at Relevance called the Purpose Method, and it's to help our clients. By and large, a lot of them are in the real estate or hospitality space. Help them find their deeper purpose, because we're finding that if all quality is is considerable, uh, pretty much the same between different options to work with different types of brands, um, they will always try to choose the one that has a deeper purpose and so we're helping our clients navigate that and figure out well how do we actually go a little deeper and make a difference and what you're talking about is really that and you have it inherently Don. you've had it for a long time you don't need help finding your purpose you you're very clear on your purpose which is what i love about you Um, But I do think that a lot of people who historically were trying to make a profit and make money, and that was the goal, and it was a race, are changing their thinking. And it's a really positive change because yes, they still wanna make money. They wanna be successful. There's nothing wrong with that, but they also wanna try to make the world a better place. And if there's one thing that I think is the most positive uh, outcome of this horrible pandemic, it is that more people are trying to pause and be thoughtful about, is there a way I can be successful and also lift others up? Uh, I, I think that's that's going to be a theme for for lots of brands and lots of businesses going forward um, because it, it's important. And people realize that to your point, Don, we have to fight for what's right. We, we know what's right and what's wrong, and we have to try to take a stand. And so business owners like yourself who are taking a stand for positive change are, Going to continue to be the the person that people want to work with and uh, and and emulate, you know. And I know that Don, you have a really interesting story. Um, I believe was it your mother who was in the business, and and then you 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 c- kind of you were you were exposed to different successful African American leaders at a young age, right? And you got to see uh, success emulated a lot. I think uh, I've I've read quite a bit that. Uh, you had some great role models, but you you were given some interesting opportunities, and and really your story is is exciting. Can you just tell us a little bit briefly about sort of your journey? And um, then I think it's going to be inspiring for others who uh, you know maybe don't know it and and might want to just hear a little bit about uh, your your story to how you came to where you are today.
2: I mean, I grew up and I was born in 1960, so I grew up in the 1960s um, and 70s, and during the 1960s, that was a, a, a very critical time in our country with civil rights movement. Um, and then the 70s were equal rights. Um, so I grew up in a time of transformation in, in the country. But I grew up and was in my household and in my family. Um, hard work was a given. And so I operated from the perspective that you needed to work hard um, to be able to you know, accomplish things and that. Um, you know, uh, a sense of integrity, if you will, and a sense of uh, having a moral compass was mm-hmm. also, you know, emphasizing you know, my family from my grandparents to my parents and my aunts and uncles. Um, and uh, my mother got into real estate when I was, um, you know, eight years old. So I became familiar with real estate very early. And, uh, and then, you know, um, I had uncles who were lawyers doctors, so I had many um, of my relatives to kind of look at and emulate. And I initially mm-hmm. was gonna be a doctor. And uh, I, my, I spent my last two years of high school working on Capitol Hill, I was a page on Capitol Hill. So I went to school at the Library of Congress on um, the top floor of the Library of Congress. They had this school for pages. So I'd go there, um, my, school, my classes started at six in the morning. So I had to get up at 4.30, get to school by um, 5.45, And I went to school until 1030 and then walked across the street to the Capitol and then worked there until 7 o'clock. And I played sports and was on the chess team and so on. So I had extracurricular activities. But I got home normally about 830 or 9 and then had two or three hours of homework and then went to sleep and got about four and a half hours of sleep. So it taught me some time management. But also, I got to see the lawmakers of our country. So you know, I got to know Tip O'Neill, who was a legendary speaker of the House of Representatives. you know, Ted Kennedy, um, and then many African American members of Congress, as, the mem- as Congress began to be more representative of the country's demographics, I got to see that change as well. So I never operated from the perspective that there was any difference in terms of talent or expectation or ability to achieve. I did operate from the perspective that being a minority or a woman, um, would make the road a bit more difficult to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you're able, if you take that road, you're willing to work harder and try it harder, then uh, you'll get to where you want to go. And so that was kind of how I operated. And, and, uh, and that's how I operate today. Um, but I was never really driven as a kid, I wasn't driven by money. You know, I didn't want to, I, I wanted to be able to make enough money to earn a living mm-hmm. and to create some wealth, but I was driven more by being able to do something, I wanted to do something that I thought would be impactful. And so I worked more for being able to be in a position of impact. Hmm. And interestingly enough, when I really, I mean, I turned 20 in 1980. And so my early parts of my business career were in the 1980s. And that was an environment of greed. Greed with consumption. And so, uh, you know, Certainly, you know, I saw that and was a part of that, but I tried to not operate from a perspective of greed, but a perspective of, you know, still having a purpose. And I think that is what, you know, has been able to propel me for, you know, the, you know, uh, 40-year career I've had in real estate.
1: You really are transformative, Don. You're a transformer. That's the word that comes to mind when I think of you. You, you exemplify all the, the best qualities uh, of, of a business leader, really, truly. Um, can I get a little bit personal? Can I get, sure. can I get a little bit personal? Because it's the fun stuff. I know that you do a lot of speaking engagements and they often uh, you know, talk about the surface stuff, but on the relevance report, we like to get a little bit deeper. Um, what is the one thing that people don't know about you that they should?
2: one thing that people don't know about me is that I am um, sentimental. I would say that I tend to be very sentimental. Um, and uh, and I think people probably wouldn't expect me to be.
1: That's amazing. Uh, well, that's great. And um, I also did a little research. I, I think you, you uh, told someone once you like to sing. Is that true, too? Do you like do. to sing?
2: I love music. In fact, had I done anything else, it would have been music. If I could have figured out a way to have been a transformer in music, I would have done it. Um, You know, I grew up in a part of my childhood, I spent in Detroit, Michigan, when Motown was based there. And my best friend's father was the founder of Motown. So, I mean, there was a lot of excitement in music, but I love music from, you know, across the board, from, you know, Jazz, classical, Frank Sinatra is my favorite um, okay. because his songs are, uh, and, and Don Costa, who wrote them, um, are songs about life. And my favorite song um, is not My Way, but it's That's Life. Mm. Um, because I believe in, you know, that like Frank Sinatra said, like the song says, you're riding high in April, shot down in May, but you're going to change that tune when you're back on top in June. So I'm a big believer that in life, you're going to get knocked down. And, it, it, you know, the, the, the measurement isn't who, whether you get knocked down or not, but it's whether you get back up. And, and then if you get back up are you prepared to get back in there and keep fighting and keep pushing. And I would say that that has been the way I've kind of lived my life and my career. So I love music and I generally look for music that's got some kind of meaning to me. And uh, so I tend to like, you know, ballads, I tend to like songs about life and songs about conquest and setbacks. Because I also believe that, you know, each setback is a opportunity in disguise. And if you look at it that way, you know, um, you know, you can get through a lot. So music kind of has, you know, been a thing for me to help me get through Um, you know, difficult times and also to be inspired and to take a break. And so Mm. generally my morning routine is that I get up and have a cup of coffee, kind of meditate for about 15 minutes and then get in the shower and listen to music and shave and get ready for the day.
1: Amazing. Well, I, I think there is definitely a common theme of so many successful people in the business world Having a history in music. Uh, Music is so powerful and can heal. And also, uh, I don't know if you know this about me, Don, but I used to be a jazz singer. And uh, I, yeah. So I I was the singer for my university big band, and I I had my own band and I sang soul and jazz. And I often say that, uh, you know, my ability to improv is very much a skill that I use today because it's about quickly thinking on your feet, being able to pivot, adapt and pivot, adapt and pivot. Well, that's what you're doing as the chords change as you're singing. Right. Um, And so, uh, you know, maybe that's why we get along so well Don, because we've got a musical tie. I don't know.
2: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: But, but, you know, it really comes down to your soul. You're putting your soul out there Mm -hmm. in what you do. And that's true in music, and it's definitely obvious, Don, that it's true uh, in your in your work today. And that's why I think you're so successful. And uh, you know, it's really it's really an honor, Don, to to have this time with you. And are there any other parting thoughts, uh, pieces of advice, things you'd like to just leave our audience with uh, as we end the, the cast today?
2: Sure. I mean, look, I've I've always been a dreamer, and uh, and and you know one of my favorite quotes, for example, <clears throat> is one that Robert Kennedy used very often. And and it's that those many, many people look at things as they are and ask why mm. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. And so I've always been a dreamer. And so I've kind of dreamed about the possibilities or dreamed about the world I want to be in or the life I wanna have or the impact I wanna have. And, and I believe that that has given me a, an opportunity to live in a world without boundaries. I mean, your know, limitations, not necessarily boundaries. So I think mean, we all should have some boundaries, but I mean, in terms of limitations, I've, I've never seen a ceiling you know, or mm-hmm. felt a ceiling because I've always been willing and, you know, to dream. And, uh, and I think that that's one of the most important things that we as human beings can do is dream of the possibilities and then, you know, go out there and try to fulfill those dreams or make those dreams come true.
1: Absolutely. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you very much, Don. This was really a special treat and, uh, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. And thanks to all of our listeners. I hope that you got as much out of this as I did. I felt I felt like uh, this special time with Don was really, really incredible. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much as well. And I'm looking forward to you sending me a disc or a clip of one of your songs.
1: Oh, ooh, okay. <laughs> right back at you, Don, right back at you. <laughs> okay, sounds right. good. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: What if you could sit down one-on-one with some of the most iconic global industry leaders and explore their secret sauce for success, delve deeper into their minds, their methods, and their motivations, and shed the persona to discover the person? Welcome to The Relevance Report, a web series and podcast dedicated to hearing from transformational titans who are shaping brands, industries, and the future. Join our host, CEO, and founder of Relevance International, Suzanne Rosnowski, as we talk experience, trends, purpose, and what's new and next. Prepare to be inspired. This is The Relevance report.